This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Military spending is up around the world. Will they protect fossil fuel interests while the world burns? Australia's security analyst and climate researcher Dr. Elizabeth Bolton has a very different plan. You should hear this. Canadian medical doctor Peter Carter now heads the Climate Emergency Institute. Carter says the world climate is already tipping into disaster. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. This week, the highest temperature recorded in 2023 struck Iran, going over 50 degrees Celsius, more than 122 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. Pakistan is suffering extreme heat again, with temperatures as high as 49 degrees C. North India continues to cook. People are suffering there, and the heat struck over central China. That's moved up to the capital, Beijing, setting a new June record there at 41 degrees C. Then there is Mexico. Oh, my. Not reported on American news. People are dying of heat in Mexico, and so are crops that feed Americans, too. Few Mexicans have air conditioners, and many must work outside. The country just wasn't ready for this. The heat dome over Texas is famous now. With the Gulf humidity, it feels up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, almost 49 degrees C, just like Pakistan. The whole American South is roasting, and while that's happening, beastly storms and deadly tornadoes are tormenting the population. For many, the power is out for a while, too. It is a discomfort and a fear in the year of 2023 of climate change. There are realistic plans to stop extinction-level heating on this planet. They could work. Saving conditions for life as we know it demands big changes for all of us. You can hear two expert activist voices in this program. Radio EcoShock. While hospitals and schools struggle, humans spend more on the military every year. In 2022, world military spending hit another record high of around $2.2 trillion. But what will all those uniforms and equipment do as the climate changes and new pressures come into society? Will they protect fossil fuel investments? Dr. Elizabeth Bolton was a logistics officer for the Australian Army, including a tour in Iraq. Now she is a climate security researcher. Elizabeth has worked with the Australian Bureau of Meteorology and the National Climate Centre. In 2022, the U.S. Marine Corps Press published Bolton's paper called, get ready for this, Plan E, a Grand Strategy for the 21st Century Era of Entangled Security and Hyperthreats. It is a ground-up rethink of who we are and how humans operate against threats like climate change. From Australia, Elizabeth Bolton, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for having me. Before we dive right into the deep end, if you were at a party or just a a casual experience, how would you introduce your work? I'm a security theorist who centres the climate and ecological crisis as the primary threat and then considers how, how we might apply some military thinking to contain that threat. Now, most of what we think and do follows established patterns. We have, like, habits running almost on autopilot. Is that getting closer to this fundamental concept that some call the deep frame? 
Yes, actually, deep, for deep framing, I, I got that term from George Lakoff, who's a, you probably know, a pretty famous uh, cognitive scientist and linguist. And deep frames refers to these neuron pathways that we develop uh, from birth through our life through interaction with the external world. And they form our philosophy or and our, our way of seeing the world as opposed to just immediate knowledge that we might learn in a you know, in a trade course or a degree or, or something like that. But it's our, our fundamental philosophical outlook. And what they find is that that influences people's decision-making at a subconscious level, you know, up to 80 to 90% of the time. But we're generally unconscious of it because it's sort of the, the conceptual space we're swimming in, like a fish swimming in, in, the, in the water. So a whole lot of cognitive research suggested that one of the reasons we're having difficulty coming to terms with um, the climate and ecological emergency is that we haven't really grasped it at a deep frame level because it, it doesn't interact in the normal sort of way that we could, our senses can interpret it. You base some of your work, or at least you were helped along the way by ecological philosopher Timothy Morton, and the Wikipedia entry for Tim Morton has this insight. It says, quote, Global warming is made apparent through emissions levels, temperature changes, and ocean levels, making it seem as if global warming is a product of scientific models rather than an object that predates its own measurement. Is that capturing some of what you just said? Yeah, his, um, his concept is, is completely fundamental to my concept of hyperthreat. I just modify it a little bit. He's contesting the idea that we can project, manage, and, under, and even understand this um, phenomena that's uh, occurring, that the way that the climate system interconnects with water cycles, nitrogen cycles, uh, you know, ecological breakdown and so forth. But it's got its own agency and we can understand glimpses of it through science and personal observation and stories. But we're only ever... And one of his, his, his key things that he's saying is that we have to get out of this idea that we can project manage this, that this, uh, the hyper object of global warming will be the major actor of this century and humans will move to a reactive stance and we'll be on the back foot and, in fact, we'll be as insignificant as leaves being blown by the wind on the sidewalk. He has been criticised at some stages for having a bit of a too dark a vision where there's, the humans have, are completely powerless. My concept, which may be naive, suggests humans have got a little tiny bit of agency. But, yeah, basically he's really trying to tackle the arrogance of, of the way we see the world at the moment that we think we can just sort of project manage this problem on the side and get on with life as normal. If we ran into some alien from outer space and we had no idea really what they were, we're sort of in the same situation with climate change, Morton suggests, and he calls climate change a hyper-object. Would you like to take a couple of minutes and just tell us some of the aspects of what a hyper-object might be? Yeah, so he has... Um fairly complicated terms for it. it. Its simple definition is that it's a thing that is spread across enormous space and time relative to humans. And, um, you know, it operates across scales of hundreds of thousands of years and so forth. And, and in that, he's talking about effective microplastics or, you know, I think there's some plastics that take 500,000 years to break down and things like that. So those type of um, time frames are completely beyond the human sort of understanding of time, which is generally a few generations. But he, he describes it as having five very specific characteristics. The five characteristics is one is that it's 
inter-objective, which means that it, in, it, we never can see it in its own right, that it operates through other objects. So, for example, the way that the wind, the wind blows, you don't actually see the wind, you hear it and you see the leaves moving or the curtains moving, but you don't see wind itself. So, and the same with the drought, you might see the crap soil, and that may be a sign of global warming or it may just be a normal type of drought. So that's something that you can't see. The other one is this idea of our viscosity, which is that it's infused through everything. And, and one of the examples is that he uses is that, for example, if you consider the oxygen in your nose right at the moment, that it's a higher um, part per million of carbon than it was in the pre-industrial era. Anyway, he goes through all, all of these characteristics, but basically what they are designed to do is is convey the idea that this is something we can't tangibly see and measure, and it is beyond us um, and beyond all of our normal little systems of how we manage problems with taxes and things like that. But one of the, the key things he says is that it, it existentially demotes the human being from being that masters of the planet to suddenly we're just another object with a whole stack of other objects of microbacteria and whales and all sorts of forms of life. So we're just another one of those that will be affected by this dominant hyper-object, which is now the most powerful force and it will shape the next century. Wow. Okay. Now you're offering a new twist or a new idea called the hyper-threat. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, so I, his concept is just global warming, so I bring all arrays of climate um, degradation and destruction into it, which it in, includes sort of uh, toxins in food and chemicals and microplastics, uh, salinity and so on. And I'm basically saying if you put them together, the whole thing constitute, because they're so interacted, interconnected, that, that they constitute a, a new thing called a hyper-threat. And the use of the word threat is very deliberate because while well, Morton's concept of a hyper-object is just sort of this sort of neutral big thing, like a strange sort of monster we've never really encountered before, but it's sort of off in the ether in the, in the universe sort of thing. But the word threat is, and it's, this is different from the climate crisis or climate emergency framings, which emphasise uh, urgency, but threat has a, a greater allusion to violence and killing and destruction and harm and not with the word risk, for example, means that it might happen, but threat means it's likely, you know, it's, it's on the way. It will happen. It's already been, you know, acknowledged that it exists. And with that, I'm also proposing that it, it is actually, it's not just a policy problem and there is a new form of conscious intent to cause harm because when you interrogate the hyper threat and what's enabling it and what's causing it, it does appear that there are human actors with a conscious a consciousness of what they're doing and going ahead anyway. And, and this is a fairly important delineation as well because previously in security circles, natural events like you know a devastating cyclone or a terrible drought, um, these are classified as hazards, which mean terrible things that happen, but there's no conscious human hostile intent. Someone's not choosing to harm other people. So they're in the hazard category. And that means that they don't go into a national security threat analysis as, as you know, very significant. But if, if we acknowledge that there are new forms and, and like the hyper threat, they're sort of diffused through our legal systems and economic systems, but nonetheless there are new forms of conscious um, decisions to cause harm, 
you know, I, th- I think it's pretty clear with what's happened with the fossil fuel industry and the cover-ups and misinformation and the intention to keep expo- exploiting beyond safe limits, that this is there's a consciousness of decision-making there. And the reason that's important to identify is because once we realise that we're actually talking about conscious intent to cause harm and killing, which at the moment I assess this is a threat that's essentially off the leash and it, it, its main source of power is its freedom of action and it, it's considered legal, it's considered legitimate and it's, you know, untold amount of killing but considered, oh, well, that's just economic progress. That's sort of the difference between the hyper-threat concept and other framings like crisis, emergency. Um, and even, if I can just add, with the polycrisis frame that's going around at the moment, um, really being promoted by the WEF, that's sort of this idea that there's multiple concurrent crises. But I was just reading up on it this morning and on their website they've got all these comments saying things, for example, like, oh, we can't reverse the polycrisis and that we suggest people get therapy to help cope with the psychological effects and, you know, the next decade is going to involve polycrisis in multiple crises. But it's, it's quite a clever framing because it takes away any accountability and it, all, it creates a sort of helplessness as though nobody's actually causing it and the only thing the individual can do is, is you know, go and see a therapist. It's very clever how that some of these framings take away accountability for who is causing the problem. Yes, this is not just a philosophical debate. I mean, you also helped international aid groups overseas. You trained in the Australian Army with a specialty in strategic planning, and you published your paper last year by the U.S. Marine Corps University Press. What is happening with your fundamental rethink towards climate-friendly military planning? Is that uh, an oxymoron? Well, it's even though the, it was the Marines who published it, I, I, it's probably worth me emphasising that it's actually, the, as you alluded to at the start, it's a fundamental rethink of how we approach security. So Plan E, in fact, is, um, argues for a civilian mobilisation as opposed to militarisation. And because that relates to the exact nature of the threat and the types of skill sets and so forth that are, are needed to respond to it, so even though it is in a, a military um, journal, I'm, I am actually arguing for a civilian mobilisation. And the other thing is part of it is that it's a very much a, a bottom-up design strategy. It's creating a framework for all the sector experts and ex- experts across all sorts of areas. It's like they're given a mission and they're given support to create their solutions. And in fact, a year is, is dedicated to deliberate planning across all the sectors and all the areas of the economy and community to start designing their response to the hyper-response. Hyper so that would, that would involve skilling up the civilian uh, population with some of these threat planning tools. And so some of the, the methods that militaries have used would be um, adjusted so that they could be used and, and contribute in the civilian context. In some ways, it's very different from what I notice again, what's going on with some of this IPCC and so forth, is this very much a top-down that the solutions are being sort of presented to the people and the people themselves aren't having, you know, it's quite a battle to get ideas and concepts heard. But this is a fundamental, the security, responsibility for security actually returns to local levels and populations um, because, in fact, that's where the hyper-threat is increasingly going to strike and, and that is also where all the solutions and the human ingenuity um, lies. It's sort of like a World War II mobilisation where we have to have the whole, whole of society participation but I've been quite careful to say that 
the model I've developed is is not a military-led initiative. It's a civilian-led initiative. Uh, and, and that the military are in support of... So, for example, the civilian world will launch this huge hyper-response force and that group will need security and support from its military, but it, the military isn't driving the event um, or the, the response. Right. I'm kind of conflicted about all this because in some ways the military may become dangerous for the future, uh, especially if they arrest the people who are protesting fossil fuels and things like that. But on the other hand, as you say, uh, profits from environmental crime may rise as resources become more rare or restricted. Uh, We're facing some instability, some fragility. I'll bet we'll expect that we need police and a repurposed military, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I argue in the paper and... um and there's another paper coming out in a few months, actually, with um, the Oxford University book that looks at these things, that our, our security posture at the moment is completely incoherent because it is being used in such a way that it makes the hyper-threat stronger. And and also, you know, just, just to give one very tangible example, that we now understand that the Iraq war was about oil. So essentially, we sent $2 million, killed you know, roughly around 500,000 people to, to get oil which makes and, and cement in oil dependency which makes the hyperset stronger, you know, exasperates global warming plus all the, you know, the damage to the environment and so forth and the emissions of, of that activity. But And, and so militaries often get used in this indirect way to support resource extraction industry. It's called systems maintenance um, as a term made by Doug Stokes. And it was initially sort of this idea, well, it's the right thing as a military to keep supply chains functioning because that helps the civilian population. But what, what it means is if, if that military support is supporting a fossil fuel intensive supply chain, our militaries are now working for our enemy. So now the, the idea with Plan E is that all of that uh, security apparatus now moves to the hyper-response force. And so say, for example, there is... And, you know, a lot of the areas of the world are in conflict at the moment. Say, for example, there's somewhere in Sudan where somebody's trying to set up an amazing solar panel array and that, that in fact, there's some conflict nearby. The security task would be to protect that solar installation. Um, but more importantly, protect places like, like the Amazon and critical, critical um, marine areas and from overfishing and those sort of things. And when it comes to that disaster response, I'm not sure what it's like in America and other countries, but in Australia, we have been using our defence force as that first first call for major disasters to help in the, the clean-up and so forth. But in, in the most recent defence strategic review, now the defence has said, look, we, we don't want to do that because it detracts us from our war posture and we're trying to prepare for a possible World War Three, and we don't have space or time to do another task. And we, we think it should be a civilian task to you know, increase civilian capability in that area, firefighting and so on. The way things are at the moment, they're saying they don't want to do it. The, the security narrative on the side at the moment, the dominant narrative is a preparations for a World War III with having militarisation all over the world. And in fact, if you look at this, what is really happening, I think, is preparations for a fight for what's left. And it, these are forms of resource wars. And so we're really at this point in time where we decide how are we going to use our security forces and our security strategy? Is it just going to be a fight for fight to the death over what as everything starts unraveling, 
or are we going to fundamentally change things and say let's let's protect the foundation of security, which is the a viable ecological habitat? So my concept is that we have a planetary emergency peace treaty, which is in everybody's interest, and that all that energy, all that money, all that engineering and technical expertise is channelled to one mission, which is uh, let's reduce emissions as much as we possibly can. We obviously can't stop global warming at this stage, but we can reduce the severity. Let it be so. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Bolton, military analyst and climate researcher. We're trying to understand what climate change is and why we're not really trying to solve it yet. So along those lines, you talk about something called entanglement, and it seems very fundamental. Would you tell us what you mean by that? Okay, so I've got this term called um, entangled security, and that, at its most basic level, it means that um, planetary, human, and state security are inherently entangled. So it's the idea that military activity can't really just be quarantined off as something that's over there and it doesn't affect the rest of society. And a, a very tangible activity example of that is just last week, a whole lot of leaders from Africa went and had a roundtable in Ukraine and Russia, and they said to Putin, Look, this war is really hurting us because of the grain and food security impacts. In- increasingly, it's an idea that everybody else's insecurity affects everybody else. So the, the weaker and harsher that we um, hurt other people, that, that, that affects us because inherently our existence is that we are all entangled with each other. So it's sort of the idea that if you hurt and damage another part of the entangled web of which we're all part of, we actually, it's sort of like shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, Another sort of example of way of seeing that is that through sort of multinationals really having some very exploitive practices all through the developing world and leaving those countries in poverty and taking the resources at at ridiculous prices and destabilising a lot of those countries, often for the very purpose of getting resources, that the backfire of that is that all those unemployed people who haven't got, been able to participate in, normally in the economy in the world have then become a workforce for these burgeoning transnational crime groups who are now the employers of choice. And, you know, the new sort of money is human trafficking, organ trafficking, drugs, and illegal wildlife trade, illegal logging, illegal fishing, and that those activities are ones that harm everybody as the drugs infiltrate through the society and so on. So, and, and there's this old concept of security that you gain security through being more powerful and stronger than the other. But I'm actually arguing that in this new era that we gain security by making the other stronger and more secure. There's two ends of the spectrum. is that the old way was to take from the other and make them as weak as possible. And the new way is to care and strengthen for the other, to give strength and so forth. For this Plan E, for example, one of the things is to weaponise employment and to creating this massive hyper-response force and giving people reasonably paid jobs and a dignified living, that we we become the job providers of choice and we, we extract those people away from some of that real destructive transnational crime activity and they come and work for the hyper-response force. So, yeah, entanglement, might just stop there, but it has actually got, I can, a whole stack of um, philosophical dimensions related to quantum physics and so forth, but I can I can expand on those a bit more if you like, but I might just stop, pause there for a second. <laughs> Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. 
we react heavily to the pandemic. And if we change a lot of things because of the pandemic or because of our fight on climate change, can our reactions also become part of the hyper threat as well if we're not careful? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we're, we're in such, um, you know, so I read somewhere the other day, they said, that, you know, that you purchase an electronic vehicle, but then that has ramifications for where, where you're getting the rare earth metals. Um, so there's a lot of these bind situations where you're trying to do something and still create some harm, but maybe it's marginally better than another type of harm. What that says to me is that an incredible amount of care is required in how we plan our response. And I'm, I'm a big fan of deliberate planning for crisis. And what worries me the most is that there is no deliberate... You know, I don't think there's a deliberate plan at the moment for a crisis situation, although a lot of people have declared climate emergencies and, you know, there's some innovations. We're not really on a crisis or emergency footing and we're not doing any planning for an emergency or crisis footing. So because... And, and what I, we did do a war game of this earlier in the year and... What, what that proved to me was that, and even myself looking at Plan E, is that when you start to think, oh, okay, finally let's imagine that we all decide that we're going to really go for it, that when we decide we're going to go for it, 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 that itself is an incredibly complex, difficult problem and we should, you know, we really need to be doing a lot of careful planning and the feedback loops of what works and information sharing and being set, setting ourselves up for that uh, learning experience because it's, it's very, very difficult um, and it's going to require all sorts of expertise you know, so we don't make fatal mistakes. So you call for a complete rearrangement of human operating systems, I think, not just a change in business, but society itself. And you also say to avoid the disaster of hothouse earth, and this is backed up by the scientists that I interview here on Radio EcoShock, this all has to happen in the next few years, maybe the next seven or ten years at the most. Are you a revolutionary? <laughs> you could use that word, I guess, but I, I, I see myself... I came back from Iraq, I saw the whole thing with weapons and mass destruction was, you know, a lie. I really do have a, a security ethic in terms of wanting to protect the people and the world, that, the beautiful world that we have. And so I, I actually just see myself as um, a bona fide security thinker that wants to protect the population. And when I see a, a sign from the scientists that says we've got X amount of years, my brain just goes into logistic planning mode and, and how do we enact how do we practically enact an emergency? I'll just highlight when you're talking about those timeframes, Plan E is just just a planning year. There is some emergency actions, but it's predominantly deliberate planning across society for a year. Then we go into what's called Plan F, which is four years fast and furious. So it's four years, everyone across the world, just giving it everything we've got to clean up this planet. Clean, it's like a tip at the moment in a lot of areas. And that becomes a security mission. And when you think about it, four years... You know, it's not that long in terms of compared to World War One or World War Two, but you know, we that's to say, to save our future, and that involves the redirection of, for example, the military-industrial complex. All those uh, great, huge companies like um, Lockheed Martin and so forth that have a lot of expertise. That that expertise is channeled at the problem, and the finance sector there. It's, it's, it becomes a mission for them to implement degrowth. And, and one of the ideas is, like, like a wartime situation, you might just have, and that say, look, let's just give everyone a universal basic income for four years while we clean up this planet as much as we possibly are. And that allows four years for the economic and finance people to come up with a more durable, long-term solution with consultation with 
people and so forth. But in the short term, we just need something that people can get along with and, and focus on, on actually doing an emergency response. What sort of reaction are you getting? Are you being heard? No. Yeah, that's out. Uh, well, that's, this is very interesting. Is that as soon as it was published by the Marines, um, there's all these uh, climate security think tanks around the world, and they except for the one at Oxford University, they have all basically completely um, blocked it. Uh, the public are interested, and I did a talk yesterday, and I've been doing various community talks and webinars and podcasts, and I find the community quite receptive to the idea. Um, but I am finding that the officials in climate policy and security policy are not. But having said that large generalisation, I'm also finding that across various sectors, and there are odd individuals who might be in the military or they might be, you know, in the trades area or anything. There are odd individuals who create opportunities for new ideas to be heard. And, and I, I think what I'm assessing is that we have this very controlled narrative environment that actually it's just becoming, it's, it's just becoming down to individuals of good conscience who create space for new ideas. And um, you couldn't really say it's this sector or that sector that's helping. But quite, quite amazingly, I think, you know, one of my supervisors on my panel is, I'm one of the vice chairs of the IPCC, and he has um, absolutely turned his back on it. And um, another, a number of pretty senior people in climate policy, yeah, that's been a little bit hard to understand. I think you're a little ahead of your time, and that's not good because we don't have very much time. So that's why I'm really pleased to have you on Radio EcoShock and to have our listeners tune into this. And you've been hearing from Dr. Elizabeth Bolton. You can find links to her work and a few helpful notes about this interview in my show blog, published Wednesdays at EcoShock.org. Liz, we're out of time, but I want to thank you for stretching our minds. Thanks so much for giving space. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Extreme heat lingers over half the world's people. India is rocking hot again. China, all of Southeast Asia with records. Even Scotland is abnormally hot with wildfires. The world is developing a fever. The cause is known. The atmosphere is being poisoned with fossil carbon. It is a sickness, and we have a doctor in the house. Our guest, Peter Carter, is the director of the Climate Emergency Institute. He is a relentless climate communicator. From Victoria, British Columbia, Dr. Peter Carter, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Thanks for the intro. You were a medical doctor for decades. Then you became a climate campaigner. How did that come about? Pretty naturally, um, as a medical doctor and um, uh, working in Canada, particularly in areas of forestry and pulp mills, and so I got involved in uh, in air pollution a long, long time ago because of the damage to the pulp mills and and the fires to some extent was were, were doing to uh, the populations there. So I, I learned a great deal. Then I was a founding member of CAPE, Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And I became their uh, sort of point man on uh, federal and provincial consultations on um, environmental health, which at the time was very big because Canada was uh, rewriting its um, Environmental Protection Act, writing its first Endangered Species Act. So I I, I learned a lot, uh, sort of the hard way. 
And then it was just natural, of course, to uh, move into uh, global warming, from air pollution to global warming. And it's very interesting, most people uh, don't think of uh, climate change in terms of pollution, which is a pity because um, it is the greatest pollution we've ever known, and we do know how to handle pollution, but we're not, of course, handling climate change. The only person, um, and I've been talking uh, uh, climate change pollution, greenhouse gas pollution, for a long time. So I was very gratified when last week Arnie Schwarzenegger made a statement that we're using the wrong terms. We should be talking pollution, not climate change. How about that? That's really interesting. You know, I've got to be honest here, Peter. A few years ago, I wondered if you were a bit too extreme, maybe an alarmist and And you still say we're in an insane global suicide scenario, but given the apocalyptic scenes that are playing out in the nightly news, it sounds about right. Is there time to sound the alarm? Oh, there's always time to sound the alarm. The alarm really has never been sounded. And, of course, that is, to my mind, the terrible legacy of the highly successful but malevolent climate change campaign. As a result of that, effective communication, sort of enthusiastic communication, has really not got going pretty well anywhere for climate change. And so um, uh, we continue to be in a planet and future killing situation. There's no question about that with the science now. One of the things that I've spent most of my time doing now on climate change is uh, monitoring all the climate change indicators, of which there are a lot. they're monitored by NOAA and NASA, et cetera, you know, on a regular basis. So um, I keep a track on those, and I post them all every month on one of my websites. It's absolutely um, shocking. Shocked me to the core, the way things are going. We're at an all-time high on all of our climate change indicators, and they're increasing at an all-time high rate. It is completely absolutely insane. You know, I co-authored the book in 2018 on unprecedented crime, climate change denial, and um, the crime just gets horrendously worse. I don't think we're um, thinking about our future much. Maybe we're not sort of programmed to do that, but it's a terrible shame that we don't think about um, our children and grandchildren and all the children in the world their legacy of the planet that they're going to be left with is absolutely terrible. Terrible. How do you see the massive wildfires in Canada this year? The penny hasn't dropped that this is a global catastrophe. The fires that are burning right across Canada, and right across Canada now, which of course is a vast country, they're actually burning the boreal forest. The boreal forest is our largest forest by far, by far our largest carbon sink. Now we have two big carbon sinks or had two big carbon sinks on our planet. One was the Amazon and tropical rainforest. That's not sinking carbon anymore. Um, There's so much uh, damage, mainly uh, human-caused damage, but also environmental to those rainforests that uh, whereas they were a massive carbon sink, uh, reducing atmospheric carbon dioxide, even in the face of our increasing emissions. So for quite some time now, the uh, boreal forest, this wonderful, massive forest, goes in the north or or circumpolar 
rainforest all the way around the planet. That is our absolutely vital future survival carbon sink. And these fires, are, of course, are going to continue burning all through the summer. People talk about some rain and stuff like that, which is good, but every day I look at them, they're just the same, just the same. And the amount of pollution, which I'm also working on, that they're pouring out is incredible, unbelievable. The satellites are picking up CO2, atmospheric CO2 emissions from these fires. That's a thing that, uh, to my knowledge, has never happened before. For the satellites to do that, these fires must be massive and must be intense. And the uh, pollution, um, which is tracked best by the European Copernicus satellite, the pollution is, is unprecedented, completely unbelievable. The pollutants that are pouring out, it's a catastrophe for, uh, for Canada, that's for sure. You know, there was an unprecedented, practically across all of the United States, air quality issue. That's never happened before. So we have, uh, I mean, the word, of course, for climate change is unprecedented, obviously. Damaging the boreal forest is um, something we're not going to get over. I recently saw a drought map for Europe. Huge parts of France, Germany, and Eastern Europe are in the most extreme state of drought. Uh, we could see a lot of fires in Europe and Scandinavia this year. Your thoughts? Well, on drought, my thoughts are that I uh, uh, follow the drought maps, mainly uh, the uh, NASA GRACE satellites. The last drought map that I published yesterday all of Western Canada is in the most severe drought, and Quebec is also in fairly severe drought. And then the heat as well matches. So I just want to mention this. These fires are heat and drought driven. They're occurring against the background of severe heat and severe drought. So yeah, um, uh, Europe is, uh, according to the headlines, bracing for another uh, severe year of, uh, of heat and drought. Now, for Europe, the future is, is, is looking completely ghastly. Europe is heating faster than um, any other sort of equivalent region in the world. It's heating up extremely fast. And, of course, at the same time, it's now getting these uh, severe, extensive droughts. And I, I was reading, actually, for a drought expert just a couple of days ago, and uh, Europe's actually been in these droughts for decades, this particular drought for decades. I mean, obviously, you know, when the summer comes, everybody hears about it. But there's a, there's a drought in Europe that's not going away. Incredibly, the next climate summit will be headed by a man who runs a national oil and gas company. So the fossil fuel companies are not just a lobby group at Climate Talks uh, with their voice. Now they are literally running the COP conference. Should we just ignore those talks as corrupt? I wish we could, but we can't afford to do that. You're absolutely right, of course. In the early days, in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, as you know, the fossil fuels um, uh, corporations with their huge power decided to uh, persuade the governments and the public that there was nothing to worry about with respect to global warming. And they've been pretty well managing and controlling the issue ever since. Two results of that, the one that you already mentioned, although the people that work in the um, climate change secretariat, great people, no question, 
But it's hard on them, particularly that the conferences have been set up to fail. Uh, they cannot achieve anything because governments, big economy governments, uh, big fossil fuel using governments, because of the way that uh, the negotiations are set up. Can you imagine we're negotiating the future of the planet? We're negotiating the future of humanity. Um, it's completely absurd and totally wrong. But they managed to push through a voting system, which is completely insane. Uh, you may have heard of it, because the media's been pretty good on it, on it that um, uh, a vote to pass anything requires the agreement of every single nation. Hence, we never get anything voted on. So we've been at this with the convention, which in 92, I was very encouraged. It was a very good, strong convention. I thought this is going to be really good. You know, we can work with this, and this isn't watered-down, sloppy language. This is a real good convention. But, of course, we've had 30 years, and we have achieved absolutely nothing nothing, except that we've been watching the uh, greenhouse gas emissions continue to pollute the uh, atmosphere. There's another reason for calling um, uh, the situation pollution, by the way, because, of course, air pollution, we've known for decades and decades, air pollution specifically from fossil fuels is now killing 10 million people a year. Now, if that's not a crime, if that's not a manifest terrible evil, uh, then nothing is, and it is, it is. So we are not managing to get anywhere with reducing the emissions from the fossil fuel industry. CO2 last year, again, was at an all-time high. Our governments, you know, uh, incredibly, are supporting the fossil fuel industry. As the planet burns, I was reading a headline yesterday that our leader of Ontario... Ontario over the past week has, has heated up, and so we now have more fires in Ontario. So it now really is right across Canada. I saw that he was pushing investments in uh, what is the most horrible industry of all, which is burning biomass for energy. So, um, like I've been saying, we're really on a suicide scenario. It's a, it's a global suicide scenario. Okay, so some listeners are pessimistic about the ability of the civilization to change. They think a collapse of industrial society may be the only chance to avoid extinction-level warming. But if the net breaks down and fuel deliveries stop, there would be a huge cost in human lives. Is collapse an option, or do you think it will happen anyway? Yeah, you make a good point. We've had some recent examples where you know, uh, governments have tried to um, uh, sort of do a better thing. You can't switch uh, our uh, complex economy at the flick of a switch. Uh, it has to be uh, progressive and, and sensibly managed, which, of course, won't be an easy thing. But it can be done, and um, it always could be done readily. The, the, the change can be readily made as long as it's carefully managed, as I say. But our governments, of course, completely useless and hopeless. That's simply because we've known for many decades that all of our fossil fuel energy can be totally 100% replaced by clean uh, renewable energy, which then, of course, also stops the millions of people that are being killed by air pollution every day. 
The only thing that's keeping the, um, I'm not an economist or businessman, but it's pretty obvious that the only thing that's keeping the fossil fuel industry in business is the vast subsidies that our government's giving. That is a great evil, that our own governments are using our money to prop up the fossil fuel industry, which is uh, wrecking the planet and destroying the future. So it's always been readily uh, possible to do, as long as governments do it in a proper way. But um, I don't see that happening. Our governments are doing all the wrong things. It seems that our governments are more interested in uh, sending your soldiers to kill each other than to save the future of the human race. Well, let me give a, a personal case study here. My wife and I need a vehicle to bring supplies to our rural home, and those supplies come from a fossil-powered world, and we are a long way from affording an electric car that works for country life. So we feel like hostages. We have to participate in the carbon-burning game to live. Do you have any words for us living these conflicted lives? Yeah, absolutely. The, the only solution, the only remedy to global climate change is up to the governments and leaders. It's entirely up to our governments and our corporations, fossil fuel corporations, our big banking corporations, that we all have to do what's right. You know, we all have to do the best we can. But if we all do our best, the planet's still going down unless our governments and corporations change. You see... I mentioned the uh, significant effect of government subsidies. Pretty well everything in our world now is done on credit. It's done from money from the banks. And it was, um, it was quite a shock to me when I learned some years ago that all of these massive fossil fuel extraction projects, you know, fracking, we've got big-time fracking in, uh, in uh, northeastern British Columbia, of course. It's all done on borrowed money. All of this money which is being invested into destroying our future, it's actually coming from the big banks, and they stay way below the radar. Although there is a group of uh, environmental organizations who do a great job, they're called Bank Track, and they issue a, a very complete uh, assessment of the amount of money that all of these banks are, are giving to the fossil fuel industry to keep the fossil fuel industry and the planet burning. So we, we have to do our best, but we have to appreciate that our best is limited because we work in and are effectively controlled by this particular system, which we call the economy. Now, environmentalists have always realized, worked hard, published countless articles and published countless books on the fact that um, this is a thoroughly bad economy. It's an economy that doesn't work for most of the people in the world, and it certainly doesn't work for the future because it's an inherently destructive economy. You know, it, it's, um, it can be simply explained that the economy has uh, one aim only, and that is to make the maximum amount of monetary profit every second of every day without any other considerations whatsoever. So that's a formula for disaster of civilization and the human race. But we haven't managed, despite all the tremendous work that many, many people have done on this, to point out how crazy this is. We haven't managed to change it one bit. In actual fact, 
Of course, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse, particularly with uh, economic globalization, which has now been going for 25 years or more. The power has been given, has been forced out of our hands, out of the people's hands, and even out of the government's hands by corporations. If you want to read a good book about that, the book is When Corporations Rule the World by David C. Corton. Um, and he wrote that as a great book. Um, uh, he's a super economist. We do have some great economists, but they don't get listened to and they don't get their formulas um, put into operation. So we run, we live in a world which is, Corton was right, certainly today it's run by the corporations. Years ago, I interviewed Dr. Peter Ward about his book, The Medea Hypothesis. Uh, as a paleoclimatologist, Peter Ward found many cases of species driving themselves into extinction or times when nature just so rearranged the climate that there were mass extinction events. Do you think humans can still avoid that trap? Yeah, of course. Um, we are in the sixth extinction now, and the sixth extinction, there's no question about it. You know, we were first advised about that in the late 80s. We now, of course, have the definitive published peer review science and the top paper, which came out of Stanford, was called the uh, Sixth Extinction Annihilation of Vertebrate Life. When scientists uh, peer-reviewed are allowed to use the word annihilation, you, you know it's got to be happening. And it has. I mean, it's so sad and tragic and upsetting. Life is disappearing all around us. I moved from England to the wonderful, attractive country of Canada and then on to the even more wonderful, attractive province of British Columbia. And, uh, you know, British Columbia was teeming with life, right? Everywhere you went, land, forests, lakes, oceans, just fabulous. But that life has crashed. I consider myself lucky if I see one butterfly a day. Um, a week ago, I saw two swallows. You know the famous thing? One swallow doesn't make a spring or summer, whatever it is. Well, nowadays, one or two swallows does, because that's all we see. And, of course, you know, the marine environment here has uh, collapsed uh, terribly. Never got over the um, uh, huge marine heat wave that went right up and down the west coast there. And so, yeah, yeah, um, uh, life seems to have a, a habit of, uh, of crashing, Luckily, it also is um, totally amazing. I mean, if you're going to use the word miraculous, this is where to use it, that life survives and comes back. And it seems it comes back in sort of more glorious forms. Certainly, uh, you know, the Earth and the planet, the Cenozoic Age, which, uh, which we have all lived in, is um, the richest age with regards to what's called biodiversity and life now. But, of course, that is disappearing at what the scientists think is probably the fastest rate. The biodiversity uh, life has declined. Do you have tips for our listeners of places they can go to get the real information when the mainstream doesn't cover it? Yeah, there are two best places. One is Science Daily. They carry they headline and link and explain, actually, a very, very good way. But they're, they're just excellent. The most important science in all areas, in, including uh, biodiversity. And, of course, um, uh, environmentalism in general, they do, and uh, population, they do. They, they pretty well do it all. 
of course, they're very good on climate change. Um, so I rely on Science Daily very, very much. The other, the other source, which has always been great, is called The New Scientist. That's a science magazine published with the intent so that people in general are able to understand all the important stuff which the science is publishing, and that's a very good source. So we, uh, we are overwhelmed with the amount of science, and, and I am literally uh, that's coming in every day all the bad news. We're underwhelmed by the scientific community really doing anything or recommending actions on a scientific basis, which we know will temper the situation and maybe uh, give us a chance of a good future survival. So that, that's where we're lacking. Of course, we have the IPCC. You know, they come out every five or so years. And, and over the years, they've, they have done a better job at um, making uh, the science, um, and there's more and more that they have to assess, of uh, making the science accessible and understanding by the general public. So that's good. But if you go to the IPCC, go to the FAQs, go to the Frequently Asked Questions, um, they're good, they're, they're easily readable, they're not terribly long for every report. And the other thing that they've started doing in the past um, 10 or so years is they do uh, something called headline statements, so go there too. You, you don't have to wade through all of the uh, voluminous, complicated uh, science of climate change that the IPCC um, uh, records and assesses every year. You go to those two and, and you'll get what you need. Peter Carter, tell us about the Climate Emergency Forum broadcast that you're putting out on YouTube. Yeah. In 2008, when James Hansen, for the first time, 2008, made a public statement in which he says, um, yes, we are in a state of planetary emergency. At the time, I mean, I'd been working scientifically on the um, environmental pollution degradation issues, so I was very, very happy when that happened. I was very unhappy that I noticed that um, Hansen sort of traveled the world and he got no support whatsoever from his scientific colleagues. Uh, you know, I don't know how James Hansen carries on all these years. I mean, he's still in his 80s. But I really felt for him on that and I thought, what can I do? And I realized, well, you know, I could start an, an institute, Climate Emergency Institute. So I, I set that up, and I set it up with writers and contributions from uh, the developing world, from the most vulnerable world, because I realized, as many people realized at the time still do, that their voice is absolutely not strong enough. You know, my, my friends and family thought it was a, a bit of a crazy idea, but it turned out to um, be very worthwhile. And, um, yeah, I do spend a lot of time on it. People have asked me for decades, don't you get depressed working on all this stuff, you know? Don't you get anxious? Well, it's really terrible that, of course, our young people, they understand what's going on. They are now suffering from uh, what's called climate change anxiety. But the answer, of course, is to get involved and get active. If you get active on an issue, I don't think it matters how bad it is. Mentally and emotionally, um, you're going to be okay. 
We're going to have to leave it there. From Victoria, Canada, we've been speaking with the Director of the Climate Emergency Institute, Dr. Peter Carter. You can find out more at www.climateemergencyinstitute.com and in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the pertinent questions. I'll follow your show. That's it for Radio EcoShock this week. Every summer, I select the must-hear interviews you may have missed from past years of the show. At times, I collect voices on a theme from a whole bunch of programs and put it together for you. Because Earth systems are destabilized, I think this summer in the Northern Hemisphere could bring never-before-seen climate-driven events. If that happens, I may create new programs to keep you up to date. So stay tuned for more Climate Emergency Radio this summer. My thanks to the volunteers at more than 100 nonprofit radio stations in four countries. They get this program out to listeners every week. I'm Alex Smith. As always, thank you for listening and caring about our world. Love will live in troubled times. Hearts can give when storms come. A human wave can come together. Minds arise as surely as the seas. Divine forms in the minds of many we believe in the heat days flow by to our times of trials minds in motion with the beat Make a future we can trust.